Welcome to Home Studio Q&A, where I ask your questions about mobile and home recording. My name is Pete Johns, and my passion is helping you create, record, and release your best music. And every week, I get a lot of questions via email, via Facebook, YouTube comments, Instagram, and many other places. So I thought, instead of just replying to one person asking the question, I would share what I learn every week with everyone. So that's what this show is all about. Now, I'm recording this, the first episode live on my YouTube channel, Studio Live Today. So if you want to keep up with everything going on in the Studio Live Today community, you can head over to the website. It's at studiolivetoday.com where you can join the mailing list, you can subscribe to the YouTube channel, and you can find out everything that is going on. But for now, we need to jump in and get started with these questions. I have a bunch of questions that have come in over the last week ready to go. But if you're here live and if you have a question, uh, what I want you to do is throw it in the chat with the word question in caps or just make sure it draws my attention to that so that as we're flicking through, if questions are popping up, I don't miss them. Oh, and the beauty part of a show like this is if you've got feedback or if you've got answers to some of these questions, then you can share them as well. So share them in the comments, or if you're, you're listening to this after the fact, there's a heap of ways to get in touch with me down in the description or the show notes. So let's get on and get started with the very first question here. So we are ready to go. We will bring this up. And what we have here is question number one. So we have uh, from Looney here, I have a problem with GarageBand where I try to get a sound, for example, an 808, and it just says copying 808.wave and it doesn't load it, it just freezes. Do you have a fix for that? Please and thanks. So importing sounds, importing samples uh, into GarageBand. So I do a lot of uh, recording on mobile. So GarageBand iOS is kind of my, uh, my platform of choice. So GarageBand iOS has the ability to import music, to import samples into the sampler, or to just import directly. Now, what you generally want to do, make sure that your samples are in a standard format, so in a WAV or an MP3 or an M4A format. If they're not, you can convert them. There's a bunch of converters out there, both on Mac and PC and iOS, to convert them. And a WAV file, a standard WAV file, is probably your best bet for compatibility. Then in GarageBand, the, the best thing to do is to go into your Files app and copy them over into a folder under GarageBand called GarageBand File Transfer. So it'll be on your iPhone or on your iPad under GarageBand and then GarageBand File Transfer. If you put your audio files in there, that's going to be the best place. You can then import them directly in. You go to your Loops browser in GarageBand, you import your file directly in and you'll be good to go. But uh, thank you for that question. And again, if anyone else has any other answers, or any other tips for importing. If you're having the same sort of problem where you're getting an issue with WAV files or with loops coming in or samples importing, then let us know. Let's share the love on these questions as well. Let's jump into our second question here. So Jay's boy says, I've got an iPhone 11 and even in airplane mode, my screen recording keeps failing. Very annoying, Apple. That would be very annoying. I agree with you. So if you are on an iPhone or an iPad and you are screen recording, then yes, it can be challenging because sometimes you'll get partway through and it will fail. Now I've got a video all about this. I've got a beginner's guide to screen recording. So if you search on the YouTubes, if you search my name, Pete Johns and screen recording, you'll get a couple of videos there. But if you check out the beginner's guide, that's got everything and there's a bunch of tips in there. So what I recommend with screen recording is close down all of your other apps, make sure that you're not running anything in the background because that can have, a, uh, have an impact and make sure you have plenty of space. If I gave one tip to people about getting anything to work on any device, doesn't matter if it's a Mac, a PC, an iPhone, an iPad, an Android device, it is make sure you have more space than you think you will because so many problems are caused by running out of space. And even if you've got one or two or three gigabytes there, go into your deleted items, go in and clean out your trash, make sure you've got plenty of space. That's going to help. And you know what? Turning it off and on is still one of the best ways to solve many, many problems. So sometimes just a complete shutdown, turn back on, can work for you. Now, if you're trying to record your screen and you're doing really complex stuff, you're running a bunch of apps, you're switching between apps, that can actually cause some issues. So it also depends on the complexity of the apps that you are recording there as well. So that is uh, that is my advice on that question. But thank you for the question. Thank you for getting in touch. Appreciate that. Let's jump in 
to question number three. I've forgotten all these questions. This is good. I've, I've been capturing these over the last few days and I've forgotten most of them. So we'll jump in here. Max Ellis says, hi, Pete, any idea if sampling for non-profit use is allowed or does it come under copyright? I'm trying to make an EP, lo-fi, study and sleep as part of my portfolio for applying to art school and thought you may read more. Thought you may have some ideas. <laughs> so I do. So here's the thing. If you're using other people's music, regardless of the purpose, and then you release that publicly, it is still covered by copyright. So if it's a piece of copyrighted music, and, and people have said this before, they're like, oh, I just used that piece of music in this video. I'm not monetizing it. It kind of doesn't matter. If they want to block it, or if they want to issue a takedown, they can do it, even if you're doing it for all the right reasons and for non-profit and all of the rest of it. Now, it is better if you're not monetizing it and if you're not trying to to actually commercially benefit from other people's music, you won't get in quite as much trouble. They won't get the lawyers involved and start suing you, but it can still be high risk. Now, I don't, I've done a bunch of videos lately about YouTube copyright and content ID. Once again, if you go to the YouTube machine or go to Google and search my name, Pete Johns and copyright or Pete Johns content ID, then you're going to find a bunch of information there. But the basics are that, yeah, anytime you use someone else's music in anything, you do need to be careful. You do need to have permission from them to actually use that. Otherwise, especially the automated systems like YouTube Content ID are going to come, they're going to tag it, they're going to flag it, and they're going to, uh, yeah, put in a copyright claim or take it down. Now, if you're putting it somewhere like SoundCloud um, or if you're just sharing it around, so if you're not making a commercial release as in releasing to Spotify, Apple Music, iTunes, etc., you are better off. But as soon as, even if you say, I'm not profiting from this, if you're releasing it to those platforms, it is considered a commercial release. So you do need to be cautious around that. But a great question. And thank you for being part of the Studio Live Today community. Let's jump in and take a look at our next one. So uh, Osman Alvarado says, ever since I got my phone stolen and I got a new phone, it's not on the App Store. Referring to GarageBand, how am I supposed to make music? Well, yes, that's frustrating. You do want to be able to make your music and you want to be able to record using your iPhone. Now what happened is that uh, iOS was updated to iOS version 13 and it's now 13.2.2 I believe. Uh, yeah correct me folks here live if, if it's if it's already 0.3 or something else but yeah so we've updated to iOS 13 and what happened is that apps like GarageBand and iMovie and a few other apps actually got updated and they're now no longer in the App Store if you're on a device that doesn't run iOS 13. So if you're on an iPad, iPad Air 2, an iPad Mini 4, any iPad Pro and an iPhone 6S or above, you can install iOS 13, all your apps will be there, you'll be good to go. If you're on a lower device than that, what you need to do is follow the instructions in a couple of videos. So there's two videos on the channel, one about GarageBand, one about iMovie, where I show what you need to do. So basically, you need to go into your app store, but instead of searching, tap on your icon, go into your account, and go into your recent, your downloaded items. So you should see a downloaded items folder there, and you should be able to see anything you've already downloaded. So if GarageBand or iMovie, if you've ever downloaded them before, you can re-download them that way. Now, if you haven't downloaded them before, there's a couple of options. You can either get someone who has downloaded them to log into your device and then download it on your device, or you can log in yourself, your Apple account, to a device that is running iOS 13, download it there, and then it will be added to your downloaded items. So if you are still using an older device, then do not fear, you can still do that. And if you are, by the way, I just updated my iPad and iPhone guides. So if you go to studiolivetoday.com slash iPad or studiolivetoday.com slash iPhone, you're going to get my latest guides there because I've got a checklist, like basically a list of every iPad and iPhone ever created. And I've got what the processor is, the storage capacity, the memory, um, all of the, the connectivity, whether it's lightning, USB-C, does it have a headphone jack? Will it run iOS 13? All of those important things that you need to know about an iPhone or an iPad are over there at studiolivetoday.com slash iPad or slash iPhone phone. So go and jump over there and check those out. All right, let's continue on here. We've got a heap more questions and a heap to get through here today. Now, this is less of a question and more of something that I wanted to raise here. Uh, so Ken Mitchell, musician, songwriter, said uh, now this was around uh, when I was doing some videos about effects and using effects specifically in GarageBand, but it's actually relevant to a bunch of other platforms as well. So he said, don't forget, of course, that you can blend the affected vocal ever so slightly with the dry vocal to give it a hint of that other sound. Then he said, someone already mentioned this below. So 
yeah, it was such a good point that I wanted to raise it here and I'll probably do another video just about this. So the point that Ken's making here is that say you've recorded a vocal and say you want a little bit of something, a little bit of drive or distortion or reverb or, or, or a delay, something in there, but you don't, you can add it directly to that original vocal or what you can actually do if the vote, if the plugin doesn't allow a wet dry sort of signal, so you can't dial in how much dry and wet you want, all you need to do is duplicate that track and then add the effect just to the duplicated track, but turn the volume like maybe down to a quarter of the original volume. And what that does, it brings in just a little bit of that extra. And, and I've seen this done really well with things like vocal transformer plugins. So you can actually put your vocal, say an octave down and maybe even an octave up as well, and just mix those in at a really low level. And it just creates this thickness. You've got a real kick and chorus that you wanna really punch through. Just, yeah, do your transformation. If you can't sing it at an octave above or an octave below, transform that vocal, add a second track of that, and blend that back in. I think that's a great way to get some interesting sounds without doing complex automation and, and uh, other things with your effects. Just duplicate it out, add it to your second duplicated track. But yeah, I wanted to call that out because it was a great point that Ken had there that I wanted to call. Question here around samples. So I want to change the key of the 808s and play them like playing on the piano. Now I've had a heap of questions. We've got another one coming up later about changing the speed and changing the pitch of samples. Now in GarageBand, it's not a super easy thing to do. And I still am yet to find the perfect simple app. But what I want, and I've, I actually spoke to an app developer this week that uh, makes a bunch of cool apps that I'm reviewing uh, very shortly here on the channel. And I said, can you like talk to your devs and just see, I want an app where you load in a wave file. It says this wave is 120 BPM. And you say, I want this to now be 100 BPM and I want the pitch to stay the same. And then I want to export that as a wave and pull it into my project. That, that sort of simple interface and app doesn't seem to exist. There's apps that can do it, but they always seem super clunky and unable to do it. Anyway, back to this question. I want to change the key of the 808s and play them like playing a piano. So there's a couple of options here. What you can do, First option that I would suggest here is to sample that sound. So say you're using your 808, you're in beat sequencer, you sample just one beat of that, you export that as a WAV file, and then you import it back into the sampler in GarageBand. And I've got a heap of videos showing how to do this sort of thing. If you search Pete Johns import samples, or I'll try to remember to put links in the show notes in the description, but if you search for sampler or import samples in the YouTubes, then it should pop up a video there about how to do that. So that's sort of tip number one. Second Second tip is that in the Alchemy synth and some of the synth instruments, there are actually some sort of 808 bass sounds that you can play using the keyboard. So if you don't want to go to the effort of sampling the 808 sound and then going back in to the sampler and playing on the sampler keyboard, you can use your own keyboard as well, which uh, can work well because there's a lot of cool 808 bass type sounds as part of the Alchemy synth in GarageBand. And the same principles, again, I know I talk a lot about GarageBand or iPhone or iPad. If you're using any other platform, the same sort of things apply. If you've got a sampler, you can import any sound and then use it on your sampler keyboard. It's a cool way to get a cool sound. We'll grab one more question from the previous ones and then I'll jump in live and see if we've got any questions from the folks that are watching here live. So here is one from uh, from The Dapple. It says, so frustrating on MIDI guitar when I program a chord, only one note in the chord will play. Need serious help. So what is happening here? So I've, I've been chatting and trying to work out what the situation is with this question. Now, I'm assuming with the MIDI guitar you're talking about on GarageBand where you're using the actual virtual guitar instrument. So sometimes virtual instruments like that will limit you with what you can actually play. So the classic one is you can only play so far up the guitar neck. And if you're on like a smaller iPhone device, then you may not be able to play all the notes you want to on your guitar. Whereas if you're on a giant iPad Pro, you've got 12.9 inches of real estate, you've got a much longer guitar neck. Now, my, my number one tip for this is when you're recording a part, if you don't want to use the virtual touch instrument or you're finding it's limiting you using the virtual touch instrument, and it is to grab your keyboard. And if you scroll down in the keyboards in GarageBand and go to other sounds, you're going to find that in there, there is all of your instruments, including your guitars, your strings, your flutes, your any of the other ones. So even the Erhu, even those world instruments, they're all in there. And then you can just play them using the touchscreen keyboard or even a MIDI keyboard plugged in. So I've actually recorded guitar parts and bass parts just using my MIDI keyboard, selecting the bass instrument, but then using the keyboard to actually play them in. And I find that that works so much better because you've got the flexibility of a 
hole 88 or 61 or 49, however many keys are on your keyboard, on your MIDI keyboard, or even your touch screen can work really well for that. And then you can use all the other cool options like your chords function, your arpeggiator, all of the cool things in your keyboard in GarageBand. And again, not just about GarageBand, other applications have similar things where if you're using if you're using things like virtual instruments, you can use a keyboard to get better control over them. So that is my take on that. All right, before we jump back in, let's uh, say good day and see if we have some questions. Uh, so we've got a, a question slash comment here from uh, from Forrest Thompson Live here. This isn't a question about actually recording, but are there any good ways to soundproof your room that isn't permanent? Now, as you can probably see and tell if you're watching on the video version, I don't have a whole lot in the way of soundproofing here in my home studio, so I'm definitely not the best person to comment about this. But when I am recording, and what, the reason I love mobile recording is that you can actually go anywhere. So over there, which again, you can't see, and definitely if you're on the audio version, you can't see, but I have a walk-in robe or a closet uh, where I have my clothes stored, and that's actually a great place. If you want a really dead dead sound. If you want a really dry sound, you don't want any reflections, any echoes, any background noise, going to the smallest place and the place with the most soft surfaces that aren't even and aren't reflective. That's what you want. That's the basis of it. So if you see people that have acoustic panels up, they have bass traps and that sort of thing, all of that is attempting to reduce the amount of reflections. So if you're hearing my voice now, you'll hear a little bit of reflections because I have some bare walls behind me, but I have a couch and some curtains and some other soft furnishings, and I'm at an angle to ensure that I'm not just bouncing back and forth across one wall to another because that's the worst sound. That's where that echo sound comes in. So again, not a heap of great information for you there, uh, Forrest, but hopefully some, some tips and some ideas to get you started there. Uh, we've got a question here from Seth Flower. Question, do you earn money off your YouTube channel or is it purely a hobby or both? And uh, yeah, so this is a, a good question, which uh, I'm more than happy to answer. So yes, my, my channel is monetized. And if you are in the in the world of looking for monetization from your music or from your YouTube channel, then having a YouTube channel where you're sharing information can be a good idea. Now, there's a few guidelines around that, which uh, we can perhaps do an, another, another show about or I'm probably overdue for an update video about it but when you're putting videos out music videos or other content on YouTube to actually monetize your channel you need at least 1,000 subscribers and 4,000 hours of watch time within I believe the last 12 months so you do need to actually have generated a lot of content and uh, have had a lot of views and have a, a, a decent number of people watching your content to actually be able to uh, monetize your channel so for me uh, definitely started as a hobby still is a hobby still is something that I love and that I'm super passionate about the benefit is that yeah it, it does still it does start to generate some revenue which is uh, which is a good thing um, and it's, uh, if you're wondering about the revenue how it's generated it's through the advertising so if you've ever watched YouTube uh, you'll either have a YouTube premium subscription and you won't watch ads which is what I have which I love uh, or you'll see an ad and uh, hopefully uh, the ads are I only ever place one ad and it's only at the start of my videos uh, I know that uh, some people have given feedback on other channels where yeah you're watching and 10 minutes in then there's suddenly an ad and uh, yeah, it takes you away from the content or there's ads at the start and the finish and mid-roll and all sorts going on. So I do try to keep it, uh, keep it as effective as possible. So hopefully that helps out. Uh, um, and yeah, and related to the previous question, uh, Derek here has said soundproofing is very different to absorbing. Absorbing, yeah. Sorry, I probably answered from a recording sound, um, yeah, sound treatment side as opposed to soundproofing. Soundproofing is is something that's not really required for the recording process. It may be required to keep the love with your neighbours <laughs> more so than actually that. Um, I'll just see if we've got any other questions. Uh, we've got a, a question here from Blood. Blood bite, blood bite here on YouTube. Uh, how do you record good vocals in GarageBand? I can't seem to do it currently. Please help. So vocals are one of the trickiest instruments. And yes, your voice is an instrument. And it's an instrument with a lot of dynamic range, it's, which means that it's very loud and very soft in parts. That can add complexity. It's got a very complex tone and timbre. So yes, it's not just like a piano where it's pushing out the exact same tone every time you hit a middle C, you get a middle C and it's exactly the same. Depending on the words you sing, 
depending how you sing them, how loud or soft, whether you use your head voice or your chest voice, there's a bunch of complexity. So I say all that to say you are not alone in having challenges with actually getting a good vocal sound. Now, GarageBand or any other platform specifically, the key things to keep in mind, some of the things I talked about in the previous one around the sound. So if you're getting a lot of background noise or hiss or reflections or things you don't want, go to a smaller, the smaller space you can and make sure that you don't have a lot of flat reflections surfaces you know bring bring in a bunch of coats and, and blankets if you need to but try to limit the sound coming through there uh, the actual gear that you're using isn't super important but if you leveling up the type of microphone and preamp that you're using can help so I did a video recently where I talked about microphones and the best budget microphones uh, so having something like I use here which is an audio Technica AT2020 which is about a $100 microphone that can really improve your sound I'm going through a mixer here the Samson MXP mixer I also recommend you know Focusrite and Steinberg interfaces so you can start leveling up the gear which will help your recording but the number one thing that I see folks do wrong or not wrong but that can impact the sound is that they record in too close and they record in too loud so you we, we all come from this background where you're like well most of us we're like okay I want a nice loud sound I want to really sort of punch through but what we don't realize is that if you get too close to a mic and if especially if you turn the input up too high, what you're doing is you're raising up the noise floor and you're, you're introducing a lot of that background noise. You can then clip or compress, which means that you're going over the red, you're going into zero dB land, which is not good for your vocal as well. So that's sort of my best tip is go somewhere as quiet as possible. Find the quietest place in your house if, you, if you've got a mobile setup and get, make sure that you've got some sort of gear. And look, if you're just using your phones, microphone or if you're just using a, a cheap microphone do the best with what you've got like absolutely I'm an absolute advocate of that and then third way third one is make sure your input gain is set at a reasonable level and that you're not uh, too close and too loud because that can have significant impacts on your sound all right let's jump back on over and we'll continue on with the questions that we've had through the week here. If you are getting some value out of this uh, and you're not already subscribed, if you're watching this on YouTube or if you're listening to the podcast, I invite you to subscribe. And uh, yeah, if you're watching on YouTube, you can hit the like button. That just tells me that I should do more of these videos. And hopefully you're getting your questions answered and maybe you're learning something else from some other people's questions. Because that's uh, I love Q&A because sometimes they answer questions that I didn't even know that I had. And that can be super cool. All right. Peter Ward, another Peter. Hi, Pete. I've been using cheap USB to MIDI interface options and they seem labeled as Mark II. Now they are no longer cheap as I have accumulated a few trying to get others that are labeled as Mark I, etc. Now, and he goes on to asking this question, uh, is it worthwhile chasing these cheaper USB cables and interfaces or uh, should I bite the bullet and get the Roland one that I recommend? Now, this is a, an interesting one because I'm, I'm all about affordable gear, right? I'm all about budget gear. Uh, I still use a lot of budget gear. And if, if, there's a, if there's an item where you can get away with a cheaper version and it's absolutely no different to the quality of your recordings or the, the quality of your experience, I say go for it. The challenges with things like MIDI interfaces and controllers and especially your uh, lightning to USB adapters, if you're using an iPhone or an iPad, you're doing mobile recording, I recommend going for a, a genuine product or a brand name product. And the reason for that is that I've had too many frustrating experiences with the no-name products, trying to save you know, a few dollars. And I know it's not just a few dollars. So for instance, um, talking about the Lightning to USB adapters, you can pick up those on Amazon for about $15 or $10 to $15 for the, the cheaper ones, or the genuine ones are about $30 to $40, depending where you get them from. So that is a significant difference. The same with a MIDI adapter. You can buy a MIDI to USB adapter cable for like $3 from AliExpress or on eBay, or you can buy the real deal, which is what I use, which is the Roland UM1, and they're about, I think, $40 last time I checked. Uh, but the difference is that they've got a, they're, they're actually, you know, powered from the USB, they've got a switchable interface, they just plug in and work. And I think things that connect things to other things, your cables, you don't need, you know, you don't, 
don't go out and buy $200 monster cables for to connect your audio stuff to your other stuff, but at least get something above the bottom, if that makes sense. I've, I've had too many times where I've had something that either hasn't worked out of the box or over time, it's become less reliable. And with something like a MIDI cable, uh, you don't want to be in the middle of like an amazing, uh, amazing keyboard part. You're like rec recording a lead part on your MIDI keyboard. It's you're like, yes, this is the best one. And then suddenly it's like, oh, uh, device not recognized, like halfway through. Nobody wants that. So it is one of those occasions where I say, yeah, you know, use a Behringer interface, use a, an MXL microphone for $50. But honestly, it, connecting, uh, I would go with something a little better. So uh, let us continue on here. We'll go to the next question. And it is this one. It is from Bu Bubbly. Uh, so this is not so much a question, but it sort of prompted me because I wanted to go on a wee mini rant about this. So Pete, I found your music on a music, a music stream, uh, but I don't like the app company. They want access to client smartphones. So I think, uh, what Bubbly is saying here is that some different streaming platforms want to, want you to sign up or ask different questions or want access to your information. And you know, how can you actually listen to someone's music? So I actually, I've spoken about this, uh, this platform before. Uh, there's an amazing platform called Songwhip, songwhip.com, S-O-N-G-W-H-I-P.com. And that is, so Wilson, Wilson the, is the, the guy that founded this and who's the developer. And if you go to songwhip.com, search for any artist, any album, any single, and it can be, you know, someone like me, or it could be, uh, you know, your favorite artist. You can get, uh, you search for a Muse album on there and you can do this. And what it does is it actually brings up all the different links to all the different platforms where you can hear that music. So it'll bring up a Spotify link, Apple Music, iTunes, Deezer, uh, SoundCloud, uh, YouTube. I think he's had a band camp in recent times. So there's, there's a bunch of places where you can listen. And that just gives other folks the option of where they want to stream it. So I see a lot of people promoting music online. They're promoting on social media, on Instagram, on YouTube, on Facebook, all over the place. And they'll put a link and they'll put a Spotify link. Now, Spotify is a good idea because I don't know what the penetration would be, but let's say 40% of people have a Spotify premium account, which means that they can jump in and they can stream your music. Well, that's okay, but you're actually isolating 60% of your audience. 60% of the potential people that could listen to your tunes can't listen because they don't have a Spotify premium account. The same with Apple Music or iTunes, the same with Google Play, the same, well, not so much with YouTube. YouTube's pretty universal, but you get the drift here, is that why not send a link that aggregates all of those other platforms, and then you can just send someone. It's a really nice, pretty interface. It's got, you know, it'll, for mine, it's just songwhip.com slash artist slash Pete Johns. I'll, I'll put a link down in the description and the show notes to where you can check it out. But it's a very cool service, and if you are trying to follow someone in their music, I suggest doing it that way. Next question here, uh, we've got Chamakara uh, has got a question. I want to build a home studio with two microphones and two guitars. So which audio interface do I recommend? Thank you. So two microphones, two guitars. So you're needing, uh, you need four inputs at that point. So if you've got two microphones, you need two preamps. So you'll need two XLR inputs on your device. And then for two guitars, assuming you're planning to just plug the guitar directly into a, an instrument input on the interface, you'll need two of those as well. So you're looking for at least a four channel interface. My favorite four channel interface right now is the Steinberg UR44. It's actually a six channel, six input. So it's got four preamps slash, so they're combo jacks on the front. So they're XLR or instrument jacks that you can in, put into the, the front there. And then they've also got a, an extra stereo pair at the back. And that's useful because let's say you, instead of the guitars or, or instead of going direct with your guitars, you want to go through some processing. So you want to go through a pedal board or you want to go through some other sort of effects processor that has stereo out. Then you can send stereo out and use two channels per guitar. So the UR44 would be what I'd go for. Uh, Focusrite make a really good device too, the Scarlett 6i6, which is a fairly similar concept. And then you can kind of go up from there to like the 18i18, which basically stands for 18 input, eight output. So uh, yeah, there's, there's a bunch of different, uh, different options, but I like Steinberg myself. I find that they are the best balance of quality and value and Focusrite also makes some really, really good gear. I've actually got a new Steinberg interface on its way. Should be here tomorrow. How exciting. Uh, I bought one of the new US, uh, USC, uh, URC, sorry, uh, which is the USB 3.0 connection. Uh, I've always wanted a Scar uh, 
I'll start again. A Steinberg UR22 Mark II. I've got the UR12, but I wanted the two-channel input one. So instead of buying the UR22 Mark II, I thought I will uh, get the newer one with the USB-C, USB3 connection and test that one out. So keep an eye on the channel for that one. And if you are in the market for gear and you do want to check out my recommendations, you can do that over at studiolivetoday.com slash gear. That is the one-stop shop for all of my gear recommendations. Let's continue on to our next question here. We're going to jump over to Instagram now. I've got a question here from a user over there. Um, hey, how can I change the BPM of a sample in GarageBand? Yes, I mentioned this earlier in the show. It's a question I get asked a lot. How do you change the BPM, the speed of a sample in GarageBand? Now, if you're using Apple Loops, then that is really, really simple. Um, in fact, this might have been Facebook. I think I said, uh, I might have said Instagram, sorry. Um, it, it's very simple if you've got an Apple Loops beat because all you need to do is change, you can actually change the tempo of those. If you change the speed of your project, so just go into your, your settings, they will actually follow. Whether you're on uh, the iPhone, iPad, or even a Mac, then you can actually do that. You can change the BPM of your project and it will change that. As I said earlier in the show, there's still not one killer app. And if anyone out there is an app developer and wants to develop this, I, I invite you to do so. That actually just has a simple interface. So there's an app called AnyTune, which I've used uh, to, to change. And that's more to speed up and slow down things if you want to uh, like record or play along to them. But yeah, and, and I know other apps, so Cubasis and Aurea, I believe, have the ability to do stretch time. So you can stretch out and, and compress in loops. Some WAV file loops actually have the ability to be stretched as well. So they'll act just like an Apple loop. So yeah, there's a few options there. But if anyone, as I said at the start of the show, if anyone has their ideas about what works for you and what you'd recommend, then let us know because it's the one thing that I'm really keen to get an answer on. We'll continue with... Our next question, which is this one. I'm trying to figure out, this is from Tom, by the way, one of my amazing supporters uh, all over the place, but especially here on YouTube. I'm trying to figure out how to connect my DR880, which is the Dr. Rhythm, the Boss uh, drum machine, uh, Boss or Roland? Boss, I think. Uh, they're the same, aren't they? <laughs> Into GarageBand and use it to sequence drums. I'd also like to use the sounds of in the 880 as well. I'm working on it. Any thoughts you have? So, yeah, there's a couple of thoughts that I have. Uh, number one is that, unfortunately, GarageBand isn't great with a lot of MIDI devices. So MIDI input in GarageBand is quite limited. For instance, if you have a drum machine that has drum pads or that has like programmed drums that it's sending, it it has to send them on the right channels for GarageBand. So GarageBand, you can change, you have to change everything at the hardware end, if that makes sense. GarageBand, you can't say, oh, this pad, I actually want this to be the kick and this the snare. GarageBand just takes it all and it says, I'm putting it where I think it goes. And if you don't like it, too bad. So that's that can be kind of challenging when you're attaching MIDI. So any MIDI device you have, you can connect up. So a GarageBand, any standard general MIDI device that uses input, you can do things and it will accept the note pitch, the uh, velocity from something if it's got velocity sensitivity, uh, pitch bend, modulation, uh, aftertouch, and sustain. And I think that's it. If you've got other knobs and dials and funky stuff that you can do with your MIDI controller, GarageBand, unlikely to actually um, actually support that. So uh, yeah, I, I know it's not, not great. There are other, other pieces of software that do better with that sort of thing, but GarageBand, when it comes to MIDI, has its limitations, which yes, you know, you can work around and you can do different things to get it happening um, as well. Now, the second part of that question, which is what about recording the actual sounds? And this is something that I like to do and I, I do quite often. So uh, the reason that I wanted to buy a, a portable two-channel interface, which is the the new Steinberg that I'm, I, I mentioned before, is that I want to be able to send a stereo signal out from some of my other gears, so some of my keyboards, pianos, other instruments, so that I can then record that analog source. Because there's two ways to record a keyboard sound. Yeah, you can record MIDI, and all that MIDI is doing is sending the data, the note information from your keyboard or your MIDI controller into your software. So it's not actually sending any sound at all. The sound is whatever virtual instrument you're choosing at the other end. Whereas recording analog audio, and I, 
I realize this is probably quite simple, but I still do get a lot of questions about this. And it's okay when you're starting out, it's confusing. <laughs> so with analog audio, it's sending the actual audio. So the difference is if you've got a USB plug on your MIDI controller, that's going to send MIDI. If or, or an old style five pin DIN connector MIDI, that's going to send MIDI. If you've got a, a out like an RCA out or a quarter inch out or a three and a half millimeter stereo out, that is sending the actual audio. So you need to plug that in to an audio interface or into a mixer that's actually gonna accept the audio and then do the analog to digital conversion and then record that in your iPhone, iPad or your Mac or PC or whatever you are recording on. I hope that makes sense. If you've got comments or questions about that, feel free to reach out to me. All of my contact details are down in the description, the show notes down below. So let's continue on here. Thank you for that question, Tom, and thank you for all of your support. Uh, we'll continue on here now. This is the Instagram message that I thought I was talking about before. Uh, it says, hello, sir. Good afternoon. Do you happen to know if it's possible to record my screen audio output and microphone audio output uh, while I have my headphones in? And the answer to this one is uh, yes. So I mentioned earlier in the show about screen recording in iOS. So if you're running iOS 11, 12, or 13, you'll have the built-in screen recorder. And when you're using the screen recorder on your iPhone or your iPad, if you tap and hold on the record button, you can actually get up some additional options. So you can actually tell it whether you want to record the microphone or not. And then if you add the microphone, it's actually really cool now. As of iOS 13, it'll record your iPhone or your iPad's audio in stereo, and then it will record your microphone audio, whether it's from the built-in mic, or what I would recommend is using a pair of headphones with or a headset which has a microphone included, it'll record that audio as well. If you record using the, the mic of the phone, it's going to pick up the audio as well. It's going to sound quite terrible. So make sure you're wearing headphones with a microphone, that, or, or even if it doesn't have a microphone, at least you're blocking the sound and then using the microphone of the iPhone or iPad. It will record the stereo of the app, the game, the whatever it is you're recording. You're, and, and this is great. If you're wondering, hey, why are you answering questions about screen recording? It's actually really great for sharing what you're doing. So if you use GarageBand on your iPhone or iPad or Aurea or uh, Cubasis, and you want to share with other users not only the audio, but you want to maybe give some commentary or you want to ask a question. I use this for a lot of my tutorial videos. So if I want to do a quick tutorial or answer a quick question, I'll record my screen, give the commentary as well, and then it'll also record my stereo audio. Or if you just want to share your project, you can record the stereo audio without the microphone and you get some good quality stereo recordings there. So I hope that helps and answers that question for you. This one was a really interesting question, and uh, I'd never really thought about this, but it's a, it's a good one, uh, and it comes from Christopher Chilaro. Uh, how many songs are required for an album, and how many songs in the album does Spotify or Google Play Music allow? Thanks, and have a great day. Keep doing what you're doing. Uh, so it's a really interesting one. I'd never thought about this. I did a little bit of research on this, and turns out that it depends. <laughs> Every different platform seems to have a different definition. So... The standard between looking at Amuse and DistroKid, so the two distributors that I use, uh, they seem to be around the five to seven mark, is what they call an album. Uh, I think Spotify was at seven or higher is an album, six or less is an EP, and obviously one is a single. So it really depends, and not that it doesn't matter, but it doesn't matter really. So as long as you, uh, I think... I would say seven. I think seven's the magic number to say. If you've got seven tracks, you're probably looking at an album. I think six tracks is still an EP. And then in terms of the maximum that you can go to, I think, uh, uh, not Spotify, DistroKid was 35. I think a Muse, it might be 50 tracks you can have in an album. And I think places like Spotify and Apple Music limit it up to 50. If you go over 50 tracks, it becomes a double album, and then you have to release it as two separate albums. But yeah, I just thought that was a fascinating question. And if you have any thoughts or comments or uh, feedback about that, then I'd love to hear them as well. But uh, a great question really got me thinking. Now, I know that we have uh, we have this user here. I miss X... I can't say your name. I'm very sorry. Uh, but uh, you had a question here, which is, does GarageBand have any stutter effects? So assuming that you're meaning just like a... 
like a, a sort of a gated kind of effect. Uh, yes, it does. So the, the easiest way in GarageBand, uh, in iOS particularly, uh, is to use the FX option. So there's a little button at the top. If you're using GarageBand on your iPhone or your iPad, you might have noticed a little button it's called FX. When you tap that, it pops a panel up at the bottom and you've got a bunch of effects in there. You've got some XY pads there for some filters that you can automate. Well, not automate, but you can apply. You can actually play in. You've got uh, a bunch of other effects in there, but there is actually a stutter effect. So there's a stutter effect that can either stutter it slowly and you can actually raise it up. So you can create some cool effects that's like like that sort of effect, if that's the sort of thing you're looking for. There are third-party plugins that actually add that sort of effect as well. I don't use it a lot because a lot of my music's rock music, singer-songwriter music. I don't use those sort of effects a lot. But you know what? I bet other people do and have ideas and tips for plugins. So once again, uh, let us know. If you're watching on YouTube, put some comments down below after the show. If you are listening to this, then uh, yeah, get in touch with me and give me your recommendations and we can talk about that on a future show as well. Now, we'll continue on here. We've got a few more questions to get through in the show. I hope you are enjoying this and getting some value out of this show as well. Let's take a look at this from Jesse Kinnaman. First, some background knowledge so you actually know what I'm talking about. For recordings, I plug in my guitar and bass through the headphone jack using an interface called the iRig 2. Whenever I record it, the bass is always overdriven, even when I have it switched to bass. Is there a better option or am I <clears throat> in trouble? So is there a better option for this? Well, Jesse, this is a problem mainly caused by the fact that the analog jack on your iPhone or iPad isn't amazing. And even though the iRig 2 is a good device and I've used them before and I use things like the Tascam IXZ, which is another uh, analog interface. What you tend to find is that with some guitars, bass guitars can especially do it, some electric guitars as well, depending on the pickups that they have, can send a really crunchy, distorted tone even when you don't want it. And it's a lot of feedback and a lot of interference can be introduced. Now, the, the solution, and as I said, I don't always say the solution is the gear, but the solution kind of is the gear in this case. So the solution is to get a digital interface, so the iRig HD, is a good solution because that plugs in via the uh, lightning jack, like the USB connection, and that can actually give you a much lower noise signal. So that can really help out. I've recently started using the iRig Pro IO, which has a microphone and a guitar and a MIDI input, and I'm really liking that device. If you want a portable all-in-one device that can get the job done, then yeah, the iRig Pro IO is recommended. Other way to go is to use something like the Steinberg UR range of interfaces, Focusrite Scarlett, Behringer UM or UR series. There's a bunch of different uh, audio interfaces you can use that also have an instrument input jack that is going to give you a cleaner recording because what it's actually doing when you plug in via analog, it's making the phone do all of the analog to digital conversion. So if you've got a dirty signal going in there, there's no way to clean that up after the fact. What the what a digital device does is that it's doing the analog to digital conversion, and then it's sending that digital signal to your iPhone, iPad, Mac, PC. So it's actually a better way to get that signal in. You're using something that is purpose-built to actually do that conversion. And the again, the higher end you go, the better the converters are usually, and the cleaner of the sound. So you, I'm not saying go out and buy a $500 or a $1,000 interface or dedicated preamp or, or direct box or anything like that. The entry level stuff, the, the $50 to $100 single channel interfaces can do you amazing things. And once again, if you head over to studiolivetoday.com slash gear, then you'll be able to check out my recommendations. And if you want to see the uh, iRig Pro IO in action with a guitar and a bass, then uh, search the channel. Search Pete John's iRig, I-R-I-G, and you'll find those videos there but thank you for your question very very cool one now i did see this user here earlier and uh they had a question here ultimato how much time to spend creating and finishing an entire song what a great question and one that kind of got me thinking and if you've heard me answer questions like this before you know i'm going to say a big fat it depends because it totally does it depends on the type of music the type of song what you actually want to get out of it and what the end result wants to be. So how much time to spend creating and finishing an entire song? I would love comments from folks here. Get in touch with me again. Details in the description, details in the show notes. Get in touch with me and let me know. How long do you spend? In fact, there might be a great, I'm going to do this. Right after this, I'm going to put a poll up on, on Studio Live today. So if you go to the community tab on my YouTube 
YouTube channel, I'm going to put this poll up to ask, how much time on average would you spend creating a song? Now, I tend to... I tend to use a month, and the reason that I use a month for a whole song is that I'm part of a songwriting community, the Song Spark uh, community, and they have a monthly challenge, which is a song, and I've kind of got into the routine of using a month as that. And the reason I do that is I found in the past, if I spent longer than a month, it would I would go into too much detail, and it would become diminishing returns. So once you get past the point where you've you know you've recorded, you've mixed, you've got done a master. Sometimes we spend too long and we're too worried. We don't want to get it out. Sometimes it's better to ship it out there and to get things done and move on to the next one so that you're not caught up thinking, oh, what if I tweak this one thing one more time? So yeah, that's probably my short answer. For other songs, I write, record, release in like three days. So sometimes it can be super quick. Sometimes it can take a lot longer. But yeah, a fascinating question and one that I love and uh, I find really interesting. So thank you for your question. We've got some folks in the chat here say, Andrew Fox is too long. <laughs> That's how long I take. Uh, yeah, uh, it, it can it can get that way, can't it? You can just, it, it can feel like you're just taking forever to get, to, get a song done. Uh, next question here from Satish. Uh, is there a way that I can use GarageBand to record over some stems sent to me via email? Yes, 100%. So GarageBand's actually pretty good for importing your audio files. So if you're in, if you someone sends you some stems and if you don't know what stems are, that's just a word for uh, tracks or cut down versions of a song. So you might have say eight files and you've got the bass, the guitars, the drums, the vocals and they're all on individual wave files. You can import those into GarageBand. So the easiest way to do that is to use the files app and again if you if you're new to files uh, you can search out youtube search my name and files or pete john's import or pete john's import garage band uh, any of those combinations will help you out or go over to studiolivetoday.com you'll be able to find videos there as well but if you've got those files put them into your files app and then when you go to your loops section in GarageBand to import them, and I show this in a bunch of different videos, so you'll be able to you'll be able to suss those out. All you need to do is import them, browse to the location where you save them in your Files app, pop them into your GarageBand file transfer folder, drag them over into your project, and you're good to go. Couple of things to keep in mind: it's a good idea to make sure you know the BPM. So if they've sent it to you, ask them the BPM of the track so you can set your GarageBand project to that same tempo, that same beats per minute. The second thing to keep in mind is to put your GarageBand on automatic. Make sure you've got enough tracks. A lot of folks do this. They'll import a sound and then they'll go, it's only got the first eight bars. What am I doing wrong? It's because GarageBand defaults to eight bars. So go into your GarageBand settings, make sure it's set to automatic and then bring it in. And once again, this is GarageBand advice, but this is for anyone else using any other the platform. You can use this same advice because it's going to be the same kind of thing. Get your files, put them in a location, import them into your track, make sure your BPM and your tempo settings are the same, and then add a new track, record over it. You'll be good to go. But thank you. A great question from you. And your your image there is you playing a trumpet, which is very cool. I'm assuming it's you playing a trumpet. This is where I find out it's probably some famous trumpet player that I don't know about. Alrighty, let's uh, continue on here and we'll grab another question here. Did I find... I've already answered this question. I was almost going to answer Tom's question twice. I put it in here twice for some reason. But uh, we have reached the end of a the end of our show here. Well, no, we've reached the end of the questions that I've had pre-prepared. So what I'm going to do, we're going to finish off here by circling back with the folks that were kind enough to join me here live. If you are watching or listening on the replay, uh, I do plan to do this show once a week and I'll make sure that there's plenty of notification about when I'm going live in the future. So if you follow me on Instagram, Twitter, uh, YouTube, Facebook, just email me and say, hey Pete, what's up? Then I'll let you know and I'll be able to tap in there and uh, hopefully keep, uh, keep your up to date with when we're doing this live and if you join me live you can ask questions so we're jumping back over here need to go all the way back up in the chat here to see if we've got any final questions before we finish off. Uh, Derek Smith says the Behringer, so Behringer UM404 HD is also great. Yeah, so I've, I've got the Behringer UM2, which is the entry-level interface, but I've heard a lot of good things about the 404 HD. And, and I've actually got, again, sounds like I'm promoting all my stuff, but I've actually got another, um, another list over on my gear guide, which is actually an audio interface guide as well. So if you go to that studiolivetoday.com slash gear, you 
going to be able to check out all of the gear that I have there. Uh, Chris agrees that Focusrite for the budget is absolutely the way to go. Yes, I agree with that. Um, we've got a question here from Cyborg. I love that, Cyborg. What is the key to get more subscribers? So this is a, a good question. It's a little bit uh, sort of uh, home studio adjacent, but I guess if you are recording music in the home studio and you are putting your music out there, promoting your music and getting folks to subscribe to your YouTube channel, to follow you on Instagram, to follow you on Facebook, to engage with you is super important. I won't spend a lot of time answering here because I've done whole shows and whole videos about this before, but the number one thing, the number one piece of advice that I give to folks that I don't think enough people do is to remember that all social media Media, including YouTube videos is a two-way engagement platform. If you are engaging with other people, engaging with their content, answering their questions and engaging with them online and taking an interest in what they do, then that is going to become reciprocal. So don't go out there and spam everyone tonight and say, oh, Pete told me to go out and engage with people. So just go to everyone's thing saying, good video, good video, good video, and just liking everything. But have a genuine thing to say about it. If you're interested in a topic, go and find other people talking about the topic, engage with them, and then you're going to find that yeah, they're going to start engaging with you. You're going to drive that natural, natural engagement by getting involved with other people. Right, let's find out, have we got any other questions here? Before we finish off, um, we've got some other folks commenting here, but I don't think, I don't think, why, oh, here we go. Uh, we've got a question here from uh, from Lee Dickey Plays. Uh, why connect an interface to a mixer? Why do people do it? Yeah, why do we, why do people connect an interface to a mixer or a mixer to an interface? There's, you can go either way. And the reason that most people will do this is to have more control. So an interface, an audio interface, and I've got a, I've got a video on this. So if you search uh, USB mixer versus interface, you'll get my video where I go through this in detail. But the short version of this is an interface generally bang for buck, dollar for dollar, will get you a better quality uh, preamp for the price and it'll give you a simpler interface. So if you are just all about recording and then doing all of your mixing and mastering afterwards and you're starting out, I would suggest using an interface. A mixer is great for what I'm doing right now. So I'm going through a mixer, which means if I want to plug my guitar into another channel, if I want to add some music right now, I could plug into another channel on my mixer and bring the levels up and down. I can adjust the EQ and the compression. So if you're doing live stuff, a mixer can be really good. Now, a combination of the two kind of gives you the best of both worlds, yeah? So you could plug in a bunch of stuff to an interface, send it into a mixer. You could then maybe record each channel from the interface separately via USB and then push it to a mixer that's pushing it out to a stereo output that could be a live live stream or could be something else. So yet you can use both of those together to get that combination, that best of both worlds. And you can even do it the other way. I've seen folks go from a mixer, like a standalone mixer with all their channels. They then send the main stereo out from the mixer into the stereo in of an interface, and then they record that interface. And that's the way that they go with their live stream. So either way you get, uh, yeah, you get the flexibility of both of those. So that would be my answer to that one. Uh, question: I did mention SongSpark before, and Derek Smith says, can anyone join SongSpark? Absolutely, Derek, and you would be great for this. So if you are a singer-songwriter, music producer, you, you like to create songs, any types of songs, any types of music, all genres welcome, yeah, go to Facebook and search SongSpark. And uh, the folks over there are great. They will welcome you with open arms. And again, it's a great place to, to provide feedback to other people. You can hear what they're doing. You can get tips and tricks on them about producing their songs and provide feedback and in return you can get some really valuable feedback about your own music because if you've watched any of my videos or listened to me rant before I talk about create record release and it's that third component releasing your music getting feedback that's what actually makes your music better that's what could improve the quality of your music so that the next track you make is even better so yes if you're interested in doing something like that go ahead and do that as well that is going to do it. I hope you enjoyed this first episode uh, of this show, my home studio Q&A. If you have questions, 
for the next episode, then make sure that you get in touch with me. All of my contact details are listed down below. You can check all of those out. You can go to studiolivetoday.com and join my mailing list. Check out my gear guide. Subscribe to me on YouTube. Follow me on all the different places that I produce content and uh, or just shoot me an email and say g'day. Thanks again for watching or listening and I'll see you next time.